0: today I'd like you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50. Uh, We're getting through this book. This is a long, big book here in the scriptures and uh, pretty exciting stuff uh, getting through the Bible. Um, I love the book of Isaiah. Um, I'm going to share one of my favorite reasons why I love the book of Isaiah here in a minute. But before we dive into this, um, have you ever had to push yourself further than you ever imagined? Um, I think of a lot of different things in my life. When I was a younger guy, I've always been kind of a swimmer. I've always loved swimming, even today I love swimming. And I, um, and I've, I, I've, I was kind of gifted uh, in the area when I was, especially when I was younger and in a little better shape. You know, I, I talked about how I run out of oxygen today but when I was younger I, I don't know why I think I swam so much as a kid I could hold my breath for a really long time underwater and I could freak people out and it was kind of fun when I was a life-saving water safety instructor down in Southern Oregon I was able to do that at Southern Oregon University um, we used to you know certify um, s- uh, swimming instructors and lifeguards uh, so as as a teaching assistant there in that class I would they called us sharks we would shark the the people that were going to be lifeguards and there's all these techniques you're supposed to have but um, I got to have the job of swimming. Uh, there was a final exam where the lifeguards had to swim around the pool, but they had to rescue, you know, me and a few of my buddies from the pool. But they had to know what to do if the person panics or goes underwater or anything. So. I, I thought it was so fun to, to go to the one who was the most, uh, you know, prideful, <laughs> and I would be flailing like a swimmer, and then, and then they, they would grab hold and get their correct, you know, life-saving uh, posture, and then I would just take them right to the bottom of the pool, and that pool was deep. You know, and I would just kind of hang out down there and they'd be trying to pull me up, you know, and I'd just be like, you know, and I could just hang out there till the, ta- till the cows came home. Um, but the one thing I did do as the years went by is I would stretch myself further and further. And it's amazing. You could just be under the water and pretty soon you'd have this capacity just to stay under there for a long time. Now, when I thought I was good, then I went to Vanuatu years ago and I got to watch one of my buddies, uh, Samuel, who's one of our pastors over there. And literally uh, in the ocean, we were swimming there and I was watching him. He dove down like 20 feet and just kind of with a little spear and he just kind of sat down there for like three minutes, just three minutes down the bottom of the ocean with a spear, just kind of waiting for a fish, you know? And he could just, I don't know how long he can be down there, but uh, so it's all relative, but pushing yourself, you know, to a limit. Now, some of you might be saying, Brett, is this a sermon about how we're supposed to push ourselves? Nope. But what is your ability to sustain and endure torture, punishment, and pain? <laughs> I, I, I shared with you guys a few weeks ago, I've, I've been kind of caught with my kidney stone <laughs> sitting around watching this show called Alone. And they drop these 10 survival, you know, bushcraft people out in the middle of the nowhere up in the Vancouver Island area. And, um, and they literally are alone. And, um, but it's basically who can s- survive the starvation the longest, <laughs> And people just get into this place where it looks like they're right on the edge of death and they're enduring all kinds of pain. It's, like, it's, it's, kind, of, it's a kind of an addictive show, honestly. But, uh, but it, it, it's amazing what people will endure for a half a million dollars. But what, it, what would you endure? You know, I think about people who are able to endure pain, but one of the things that we need to, as Christians, understand is one of the greatest uh, endurance of pain and suffering that ever took place um, was our savior, Jesus Christ, who willingly went to the cross and before the cross, even torture and brutality. And he endured the cross, the Bible says, he endured it. Now, the problem with this is, you know, you and I, we have a tend to separate, you know, an ancient story from a couple thousand years ago with a real, a real person. Jesus was man, God in the flesh. And you know, I'm about to say something that's gonna sound really unintelligent, but stick with me. Did you know that temptation, for it to be temptation, it has to be temptation? <laughs> you might say, Brad, that's stupid. Nope, listen, for temptation to be temptation, it has to be temptation. See, here's the problem. When I was a little kid, I used to think of Jesus. Well, he's God and he had magical powers. And so when they whipped him and punched him and plucked out his beard and beat him and uh, nails in the hands, he just, you know, injected himself supernaturally with some anesthetics and uh, and just didn't feel it. Uh, he was able to endure the cross because he was able to take away the pain. But then as I studied the scriptures more and grew in, in knowledge of what the Bible actually says is. Jesus felt every single part of that pain and then some. There's part of that pain we don't even fully understand and that is the part where not only was he dying a horrific, shameful death on the cross, but he was doing that all the same time our sins being piled upon him. You know that that horrible feeling you get when you got caught in a sin that nobody wants to, you don't want anybody to know about and you just know you're guilty, guilty, guilty? That shame of guilt and that heaviness of sin, that f- from your life, my life, and the life of the whole world was put on Christ at one time. Like we need to separate this thing that happened a couple thousand years ago. This was a real event, the cross of Jesus Christ, and he endured it. It reminds me of those firemen that were you know, those firefighters are out in the forest mopping up a forest fire. The story is told where along the fire trail that they'd cut, they saw something that was kind of weird. It was like a black charred pile of something. And they looked over and amazing, amazing. It was this bird just sitting, this bird sitting there black and charred and dead. And the firefighters kind of looked at that with wonder, man, why wouldn't this bird just fly away and get free and, and this charred bird just sitting there, and and uh, they kind of they thought, what a bummer, you know. Maybe it was crippled or hurt somehow, but it, it never got out, out of the fire, and they were sad. Well, they they thought, well, let's move it off the trail, and you know they felt bad, and so they kind of they kind of shuffled the bird aside, and then they were all stunned and shocked, actually, kind of freaked out a little bit because as soon as they moved this bird, out came all these little bird chicks. It was under the mother of uh, these little chicks under this burned mother bird. There were like four little chicks that were saved. The mother literally covered those little chicks with her body and took, took the fire, took the flame to preserve her little chicklets. And if I were that bird, I'd say, you know, sorry, kids, uh, we can go start another family later, but I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, that, that, that's me. But praise the Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ took the hit for us. One of the, and not only did he take that, but he, he endured it. He could have flown away, if you would, at any moment. See, that's what Isaiah, the prophet, one of the things I love about the book of Isaiah is it's so messianic. I was asked by a good dude the other day, he was saying, hey, Brett, what's the most messianic book of the Bible? And Man, my head started spinning thinking about that question because um, you know, the scriptures say, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me. You know, it's all about Jesus, everything. But when I have to say, it's interesting, you should ask that while we're in the book of Isaiah because in some ways, you know, Psalm gets a, a, a real close second if you ask me, uh, but messianic scriptures, Isaiah. Man, there's so much, so exacting detail of Christ and what he would do for us, especially as it relates to his suffering On the cross, you see what I love about what Jesus did for me is not only did He endure the pain, but He could have bailed out at any moment. You see, that's the scripture that we have before us. He's Isaiah the prophet's going to give us some really cool detail on this. Um, You know, it's interesting because you know Psalms twenty-two. You guys remember we read that a few years ago as we were going through the Bible. It presents a clear and accurate description. Of the process of crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented in the world at that time. Psalm 69 speaks of the vinegar that Jesus would be offered to drink on the cross. But Isaiah 52 and 53 describe how Jesus would be beaten for our sins, bruised for our iniquities. But here in Isaiah 50, we see how the, the prophecy comes about about Christ's death, some specifics about the death of our Savior Jesus. That's what this, this little section of verses I want to show you today. It shows what Jesus did. Um, now, by the way, uh, the reason these are so important is uh, these Old Testament messianic scriptures. When messianic means uh, the Messiah, Jesus, that's being foretold in the Old Testament. Messianic, pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. That's what Isaiah does. And the New Testament says over and over again that the gospel was preached according to the scriptures. Now remember, in, in Paul and Peter's time, they didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. 5th. They didn't have all that. They only had the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, you know, all the way to Malachi. They, they had just this short, um, shorter version of what today, we have the Old Testament and New Testament, which makes the whole Bible. Um, but they, they had the Old Testament. So when, when it says stuff like this, like, let me give you an example. I'll, I'll just, I know we haven't got to our text yet, but I'm setting it up for that. First uh, Corinthians 15. Remember, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Listen to this. It says, um, for I have delivered you, first of all, that I was received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he referring to when Paul writes this to the Corinthian church? He says, Christ died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures, Isaiah, Psalms, Daniel, Ezekiel, like there's prophecies about Jesus all throughout the Old Testament, according to the scriptures. And that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. Apparently, we should be able to hear the whole gospel message in the Old Testament, even if we didn't have the New Testament. The, the early church flourished and knew what the truth was and knew what doctrine was because there were scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. You see, I find the Old Testament scriptures is a great um, part of how we understand the New Testament. If we didn't have the New Testament, we'd be a poorer church. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we would we'd be a poorer church. Sad to say there are some churches that only hang out in the New Testament. They almost believe, you remember the replacement theology thing I always talk about? Some of those churches forsake the Old Testament because that's a Jews book. That's the way they look at it. It's the Old Testament. That's, That's the problem with that name Old Testament is some people, old, washed up, has been. No, old in that it's older than the New Testament, but it's equally powerful, equally inspired, equally important. So don't forsake the reading of the Old Testament. You'll be a poorer Christian without it. In fact, there's things about Christ's death that we even know, not from the New Testament, but from the old. Um, So we'll show you some of that uh, today. So, you know, the idea of this passage being, um, you know, messianic is so cool. When Paul said Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, he could have in his mind, Isaiah chapter 50, uh, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. He could have any one of those scriptures in his mind when he says, according to the scriptures. Um, Jesus in Luke eighteen thirty-one through 34 also speaks in the same way about you know, the scriptures. Let me read to you Luke 18, uh, verses 31 through 34. It says, then he took the 12 and said to them, behold, we go up to Jerusalem and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the son of man shall be accomplished for he shall be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked spitefully and treated and spitted upon and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. And the disciples understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, neither the things which were spoken. Jesus said, I'm about to go beat up, be be spat upon, be hung on a cross, die, and three days later, I'm gonna raise from the And the disciples were like, "What, what did you just say? And they were so confused, they said, whatever, we don't understand what you're talking about. But then afterward, Jesus died on the cross, when he rose from the grave, they said, this is what he said. And then they remembered that he was saying like the Old Testament prophets said would happen. So then those guys, Paul, Peter, and the guys went back and looked in the Old Testament and found this is a fulfillment of what the Bible says. Jesus is the Messiah. What were those scriptures Jesus was referring to? The prophets, who he was referring to? Isaiah. What we're about to read. Well, let's read the passage. Not so fast. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, uh, one of my favorite preachers. I'm, I'm setting this passage up because, I, to me, it's just powerful. And I feel, in some ways, that I can never do a great service. The scriptures are so powerful; they really should just stand alone. Uh, sometimes I almost feel like some scriptures I should just read and say, "Okay, there you have it. Let that sink into your heart and your mind." This is one of those passages I feel inadequate to even try to, um, you know, articulate what Jesus endured on the cross for my sins and yours too. Spurgeon had that same feeling. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that preacher in the 1800s in London, the Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London. uh, Listen to what he said concerning Isaiah chapter 50. Um, In fact, we're gonna, in just a second, look at verses five through seven. Don't read them yet. Uh, But uh, uh, specifically about this section I'm about to read, here's what Spurgeon said. He said, picture this big preacher with a British accent, you know. He said, I may not be able to say much that is fresh upon this theme, but I hope that I shall be helped by the Spirit to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. My great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like a flint in his determination to save you, O redeemed ones, on whose behalf this strong resolve was made, you who have been bought By the precious blood of this steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of him. That your hearts may burn within you and that your faces be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. Man, Spurgeon's on the money on this one. Um, this is a powerful, powerful scripture. And hopefully it'll be a life changer for us as it, as it seems to have been for him. So let's take a look at this. It's, uh, it's Isaiah chapter 50. We're gonna look at a few verses. Well, Lord willing, we'll cover this in, on Wednesday night, but um, the whole chapter. But I wanna draw your attention here to uh, um, chapter 50, uh, verse five. And there it says in Isaiah 55, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint." And I know that I shall not be ashamed. This is a messianic scripture pointing us to what happened on the cross. Now there's some language and some history and tradition and all kinds of things built into this where we tend to miss some stuff. So I'd like to just meditate on these five, six, and seven, these three little verses of what Jesus did for us. And you can jot these things down. And man, I'd encourage you to meditate on these scriptures. But the first thing I want you to see is number one, Jesus went willingly. Jesus went to the cross, went to be brutalized and tortured willingly. Even as that bird that I explained, willingly laid down her life for the chicks. Um, That's what Jesus willingly endured, willingly went to. Now, here's where the language gets interesting. What does it say about opening my ear? The Lord God hath opened mine ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. The opening of the ear is something that we could miss. You might be thinking that means listen. But it actually means something very different. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 21, right around verse 2, I believe, there was the institution of the uh, bond slave. Remember that whole thing? Where if you were a slave, now remember, slavery is such a hot controversy uh, today. Everybody gets all freaked out when you talk about slavery but in Bible times, you were a slave either because of one, you were in debt and you couldn't pay your debts. And so you suddenly became a slave. That's, that's not what we do now. Now we just go bankrupt and uh, everybody loses their money. And it's just kind of sad. Slavery, oftentimes in Bible times, you'd have to, you'd be enslaved to somebody. So people were careful when they borrowed money and did stuff like that. But if you couldn't pay, then you were a slave to that person until you paid your debt. Um, and somebody could be indebted so long, it could be a lifetime. The other way you can become a slave in Bible times is by warfare. You know they didn't they didn't have prisons, they didn't have concentration camps, uh, they didn't have. So what did they do in Bible times? If a conquering nation came through, they either slew you and killed you, option A, or you could become their slave. So you know nations would become slaves of people, and there were lots of slaves. There's been slave every culture, every people group. There's been slavery of some kind, in some way, shape, or form. So it's, it's just the sinful nature of humanity. Now, some people say the Bible condones slavery. That's total hogwash. The Bible never condones slavery. But if you really give a careful read to the Bible, you realize the Bible regulates slavery. Um, it's almost like God knows man's gonna be horribly sinful, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it so that they realize there's a time where you gotta let people free and you, you should not stick with slavery. One of those mechanisms God built in to his word was this idea of the bond slave. Um, the Jews were the first culture that said, you can only have a slave for six years. On the seventh year that the slave that was a part of your household has, has, has a choice to make. And that choice would be, do I continue being a slave or do I just go off and um, live freely? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, who wouldn't wanna live freely? Well, here's the thing, in God's omniscience, knowing all things, he knew that if a slave owner uh, in Bible times treated their slaves like family, like picture yourself being a slave and they treat you like family, you become one of them and you're living with them and you have food to eat and a house to live in, in Bible times, that's worth a lot. And um, if they treated you well, someone might become a doulos in the Greek, bond slave in the English, Um, It's a a slave by choice, laying down your life to be a slave. So what they would do, according to Exodus 21, is they would put your earlobe on the door uh, post and they would take an awl and poonk, pierced your ear. Now you Portland people are like, oh, that's great, piercing's awesome. Tats too, right? Well, it was just a big piercing and they put a big ring right in that ear. And that ring in your ear, the hole that was bored in your ear, the opening of the ear, that's this idiom used here. The Lord hath opened mine ears. Not to listen, but opened a hole. The, the, the Hebrew word here is to dig out a hole in your ear. And that's right there. So this idea of the bond slave, man, um, the Jews employed that. Uh, the bond slave, six years, this person was a slave, but then the Lord capped it. And at seven years, you gotta let them go or they could become a slave by choice. Now, why would they become a slave by choice? If the master was awesome, then you say, I wanna be a slave to you forever. Or number two, another reason, interestingly enough, that people become enslaved by choice is if the person they loved, a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend, um, was in that household and that wasn't their time to be free. A person say, I'm going to stay here because I love them and I want to stay with them. Now, that's an interesting picture if you kind of think about it. Jesus, we know from not just this verse, but other passages, Jesus is called the, the slave. Remember in Philippians chapter two, it says Jesus made himself of no reputation, um, made himself in the form of a of likeness of men and took upon the form of a what? Servant, doulos, bond slave, a slave by choice. Jesus is the one who willingly stripped himself of his clothes, wrapped himself in a towel and washed the stinky disciples feet. He did that by choice. That was a slave's job. Jesus came to die on a cross for you and for me. That would be a slave's job. Jesus willingly opened his ear. That's what this prophecy is saying. The Lord God hath opened my ear. I was not rebellious. Jesus was asked of the father to go and die for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus would say, like in the gospel of John, I always do the will of the father. Jesus submitted himself as a willing slave. He willingly opened his ear. He willingly went to the cross He's a slave by choice. And after Philippians 2 says he was a slave, it says he was obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus did that for you. He went willingly. Now, I got to undo something that's in your brain. Because if any of you have watched Jesus films or Jesus movies, I always crack up. Because they, they, they just to make the drama, I think, they want to make it look like Jesus was kind of fighting with them. You know, like the Romans came to the garden and two soldiers came and apprehended him and got him in an arm lock and two soldiers. And Jesus was like fighting and trying to drag his heels and they're dragging him off to Caiaphas' house. Um, That didn't happen. Jesus went willingly. Um, Jesus set his face like flint to go to the cross. Jesus didn't drag his feet. Um, You know, the thing that's so important about this, I hope you guys remember that, you know, Jesus um, could have... Uh, really caused trouble for these soldiers. He didn't need to drag his feet and sort of struggle. He could have just called down a legion of angels. We know that from the scriptures. You know that he could have called down a legion of angels and said, uh, "Wipe all these guys out." He wouldn't even have to have done that. He could have just. Uh, he could have just. You know. By the way, um, Jesus calling out a legion of angels. A legion probably was eighty one thousand nine hundred and twelve angels. And I don't have time to go into why that's how many angels it is. But Matthew 26, 47 talks about how that. Jesus could have called a legion of angels. Remember how many angels it took to kill the entire um, you know, uh, Syrian army? Rabshake in that 185,000? One angel. Jesus could have called you know, so many angels, a whole legion, and rescued himself. So this whole notion in your mind of Jesus struggling with the Roman soldiers, hoping not to be dragged off to be crucified, that didn't happen. Jesus set his face like flint and he went willingly. I hope you see that of our savior. That's what this verse five is. He was obedient, not rebellious. Neither did he turn away back. He never turned back. He never had a second thought. He just went and did what he knew he had to do to save you from your sin. And he did that willingly. So sobering. Um, I wouldn't do anything for me willingly. I know myself Jesus, knowing all your sin, knowing how, see, that's the problem. When you're brutal on yourself and you, um, people that are always feeling guilty and condemned because of their sins, you got to stop that. Because Jesus knows all your sins, the ones you've done, the ones you're doing, and the ones you've yet to even do. He knows all that. And and, and yet he still went willingly to die on the cross for your sins. And he didn't go back. He said, nope, put a hole in my ear. I'm going to do this obediently and I'm not going to go backward man we can just talk about that one uh, today Um, willingly Jesus went willingly number one but number two Jesus went painfully and this is where I want to go back to that when it's not temptation unless it's temptation Um, Jesus felt the pain uh, excruciating pain Um, this is where the prophecy of Isaiah reminds us of that in verse six, the first part, it says, I gave my back to the smiters. In the gospel of John, uh, chapter 19, and you can jot this down in your, your notes if you want, but in John nineteen five, um, it, it just, you know, it says that um, the, concerning this whole way they dealt with him, it says, and all will start in John 19, one, Then Pilate, Pontius Pilate, therefore, took Jesus and scourged him. Keep that word scourged in mind. And the soldiers plaited or twisted a crown of thorns and put upon his head. And they took and put upon him a purple robe and said, hail king of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them, behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. And then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man, like look at him. He's been scourged, beaten, crown of thorns, look at him. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said unto them, take ye him and crucify him. I find no fault with him. Well, what a powerful suffering Jesus endured. And, and this is what we begin to see. The scourging that's talked about there in John nineteen one, is the, the flagellum of the Romans. The Romans had perfected this sort of torturous thing. By the way, um, if you want to go down a dark strain of history, look at torture um, because man has found torturous, torturous ways uh, to hurt each other. Um, you know, it's been somewhat of an art form for some people groups, how to kill someone and keep them alive as long as they can and to keep them conscience, conscious as long as they can so that they can feel the pain. Um, they, 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 you know, had things that they could do where they literally were removing organs from a person's body while their heart was still beating. Um, it's just crazy. Uh, it was like one of their favorite things to do. And, and what's even more kind of crazy, if you, not to get too off on history, but um, if you think about what people enjoyed watching, um, you know, our culture is, you know, we, we probably think we're bad at this, but historically generations, hundreds of generations before us, people, that was their entertainment, man. The, the, the women, the children would come into the town square, hey, let's watch the beheadings. And they just watched with great curiosity and they'd cheer. It was almost like, you know, going to see, uh, you know, the Blazers or something. Uh, you know, like humanity is so sinful and depraved, it's not even funny. But of all the torturous devices, I think the flagellum, well, the Romans had worked that into an art form in and of itself. The flagellum, some would call it a cat of nine tails. Uh, and, it's, and it's unclear exactly what the Roman flagellum, whether it was a, some, it almost looks like a lacrosse basket, with these leather straps coming out and lead balls at the end. And they call that a cat of nine tails. And some believe that was the scourge, and, and those balls and pieces of glass or obsidian would be embedded in the leather straps. Um, so the, the person who knew how to use a flagellum could, at certain angles, bruise and swell. And then with a different twisting of the flagellum, he could then rip and tear. And it was this horrifying, you know, it literally would make your back into hamburger meat. There's actually pictures. Uh, I, I shouldn't even tell you this, but if you Google or you know Wikipedia the flagellum uh, or the cat of nine tails, there's pictures of people uh, you know 100 years ago who were whipped with a flagellum, and it shows their back. And um, you know historical accounts, Josephus and others write about accounts where people that were whipped with the flagellum, you could see their rib cage and their organs underneath the rib cage, and yet they were still conscious, still alive, and they survived. Now, normally 40 lashes would be a death sentence. If you were 40 lashes with a flagellum, you're probably gonna die. You'd bleed out or whatever. But interesting, um, you know, Jesus whipped 39 lashes with the flagellum and that's what it says here. He would be scourged, he would be whipped. Um, that's why in verse six, I gave my back to the smiters. Jesus went willingly, yes, but he, don't forget, he felt every lash. Of that flagellum, and he did it for you and for me. In the second part of verse six, it says he gave his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. This is where we learn that Jesus had his beard plucked out. And those of you guys that have beards, you know, uh, it's it's a little bit of a painful thing. I'm not even going to say little. It it hurts. Uh, You know, uh, I think there's a lot of other painful things I'd rather endure than having. The beard plucked out, but he was beaten and his beard ripped out of his face. Now, this is not only the pain part of it, but this is something, again, our culture, we definitely don't understand. Unless you're uh, um, you know, a hipster in Portlandia, um, your beard is not a symbol of your, uh, your integrity or your greatness or your honor or your maturity. But in those times, when you ripped out a man's beard, you were saying something. You were, you were making a statement uh, that you felt that the man was a total loser. Um, it wasn't just for the pain of ripping out the beard. It was a symbol. Do you guys remember there in that story, uh, ancient story of 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse four, where those guys went, remember when David sent condolences, you know, there to the men of um, Ammon and the Ammonites were there. But the men of Ammon took David's messengers and shaved off half their beards and cut their robes off back at the area of the rear end. So they ran out of Ammon with their rear ends sticking out of their robes and their beards half shaved off. Do you remember that story? Yep, it's in the Bible. (laughs) Um, But the men of David, they went to the city of Jericho and they stopped there and said, we can't go to Jerusalem. Why? Because your rear ends are showing? That wasn't the problem. Their beards were half shaved off. They said, we will not appear before our families. We're not going to stand before King David with our beards half shaven. And so David said, okay, I tell you, I got to stay down there until your beards grow, and then you can come back into Jerusalem. What was that all about? It was the most shameful thing that ancient people thought you could do to a man, shave off his beard. And so these men were just totally embarrassed and shamed. Um, and so that's the thing we miss when it says that they plucked out his beard he, they were they were doing one of the most shameful things that they could do we have shameful things i guess that we do and one of those by the way is spitting when you spit upon someone that that's in, in a lot of people's minds that's one of the especially during the covid thing it's it's so sad to see <coughs> the the vile behavior human humanity did you see those people that are being screamed at by protesters and fisted in the air and the, and the people are just trying to eat their lunch and they're and they're you know the spits flying and the anger's raging and man you think what about the coronavirus uh, well nobody cares about that on the the protests but the truth is um the Bible says talks about why the heathen rage maybe I'll talk about that at prophecy update this next one um but but all that to say you know. The idea of your beard being plucked out, shameful, but also spitting. And that's what it says here in the second part of verse six. It says, I gave my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And I hid not my face um, uh, from shame and spitting. So they spat upon him. Um, Now, again, this really happened. You know, we're not talking about a fairy tale. We're not talking about some poetic mythology or esoteric theology, we're talking about a real man who absorbed all of these um, horrific, painful things. And, and you have gotta personalize this. It can't be you died for the sins of the whole world. He did do that. But I think you and I, to be a, a follower of Jesus and a lover of Jesus, you have to understand he did this for you. And he did this with you in mind. Um, and we'll talk about how we know that here in a second. Uh, in fact, let's jump into the final and the third consideration for today. Not only did Jesus go willingly, number one, painfully, number two, but number three, and finally, Jesus went purposefully. He went with a direct and very clear intent. And, it, and that's what it says in verse seven, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, will I, shall I not be confounded? Therefore, have I set my face like flint. Man, I love that phrase. That, that's a phrase that to me, I just think of a, sorry, man's man who says, I'm doing this and I don't care what anybody says about it. Um, so many people are wishy-washy today. People don't stand on things anymore. Um, we're so worried about what everybody thinks or what might happen to me and, and my feelings and all this stuff. That's not this phrase. This is a man, Jesus, who says, I'm going to go and set my face like flint. Determination, strong-minded resolve, and now his stern resolve would be tested. And if you know the the story of Christ and his crucifixion, Jesus passed the test with flying colors. Total resolve, unwavering sense of commitment to endure the the, the, to endure the, the cross despise the shame and carry out the salvation for humanity. Um, You know, how would Jesus's stern resolve to go to the cross be tested? Well, all of that's in the narrative of the gospels. I think it started long before he was apprehended by the Romans there in the garden. The, The resolve of Jesus was tested long before that. In fact, very early in his ministry. Do you remember there in Matthew chapter four? We remember the story of Satan, who led Jesus early on in his ministry out into the wilderness to be tempted, uh, you know, of the devil there. And remember, temptation to be a temptation has to be a temptation. So these weren't, you know, again, I used to think, well, Jesus isn't going to bow down to Satan because he can't give him all the kings of the world. That's not even real. As it turns out, it is. It was a real temptation to Jesus to bow down before Satan to get the kingdom of the world, but. Jesus endured. And it wasn't because he had magical enduring dust sprinkled on him. It's because he endured. Listen to this. This is what happened. I'll give you this is um, like, you know, they went through several rounds of temptation, but this is like the third round. Again, the devil took Jesus. This is um, Matthew, you know, four verse eight. Jesus um, was taken of the devil into exceeding high mountain and the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, all these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, get thee hence Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And then the devil left him and behold, the angels ministered to him. All you gotta do, Jesus, is just bow down and I'll give you the kingdom of the world. Now this tells us so much. First of all, did you know the kingdoms of the world were Satan's to give? explains a lot. People blame God for a lot of stuff in this world. But do you understand that the Bible says today, Satan is the God of this world. He's called the prince of this world. And that's why he's got the uh, title deed to the world. And here he's claiming that if you bow down for me, I'll give you that title deed to the world. You can have it back. You lost it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but you can have it back. And Jesus could have just bowed down and got it. it. Was that a temptation? For it to be a temptation, it had to be a temptation. The show I was telling you about, Alone, here's the hardest part. They're out there in the wilderness for like 70 days, starving, freezing, snow and ice and cold and just hungry. And they got this little yellow thing, little digital cell, cellular or satellite phone kind of thing. All they have to do is push a button. And a helicopter comes and scoops them up and gets them a hot pizza. And they get to go back home in their comfortable beds. Like, it's so funny how they just sit there on a log looking at this thing, thinking, should I push the button? You know, that's what it makes me think of is, is Jesus could have just said, I'm out. I'll, I'll take the kings of the world, forget humanity. Let them all die in their sins and go to hell. But at least I'm comfortable. At least I've got my kingdoms back. But Jesus, I mean, this is how Jesus' was resolved and his face being set like flint. According to the scriptures, this is how Jesus endured purposefully. How else did the resolve of Jesus, how else was it it to be tested um, by the uh, persuasions of his friends? Remember when Jesus was explaining this, I'm gonna go and they're gonna take me and crucify me. Remember what Peter said? Peter took him and began to rebuke him saying, you know, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Remember Peter, I'll be there. And then sure enough, Peter, you know, they came to take him and Peter pulls out his little sword, probably an 18 inch dagger. And da da, da, da Peter's going to save Jesus, and Jesus said, "Peter, put away your sword." Like his friends, Peter, his, his closest, uh, you know, friends were trying to say, "Don't do it. I'll take care of you. Don't let this happen." His stern resolve would be tested by the unworthiness of those he was trying to save. All Jesus would have had to do, at least for me, and I, I think you could probably speak for yourself, but look at all my sins. And say, let's see, should I die for Brett? Man, Brett's a total loser. Brad has made mistakes and he's sinned and he's done this and that. And man, you know, I don't want to die for that loser. Why would I die for a loser like that? Like that would test anyone's resolve if you ask me. But not only did he do that for me, but he did it for you too. And you know your sins. And yet the Lord says, I still love that person enough that I'm going to endure. How else was Jesus's resolve tested? Not only by the efforts of the world or by the, by, uh, by the rebuke of, of uh by the offers of the world, Satan himself offering to give him the kingdoms of the world, his friends, the unworthiness of those he's trying to save, but also how easy it would have been to bail out. Jesus could have done less than push a button. He could have just said, I'm done. And pure go back to heaven, right there. But he was setting his face like flint and was willing to go and suffer and die. And the reason he did that, why? Would he do that? What was it? Would you flip over to Hebrews chapter 12? I'm almost done. Hebrews chapter 12. This tells us why Jesus endured all this and set his face like flint unwaveringly to finish the work of the cross. He did it. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two. It says this. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay, every, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, pause for a second. What he's saying here is we need to uh, just run the race with patience and endurance. Why should we, you and I, run this race, this life with patience and endurance? That We're about to give the reason why you should keep plugging away. Why should you not get up, give, give up during this time of coronavirus and riots in Portland and um, sadness and politics and weirdness and craziness. Why should we just not hang it up or get depressed or divorce your spouse? Or why should we keep going? Here's the reason. Verse two, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was it? You see, when I think about this, this just blows my mind. The bird sat on the chicklets. Why? Because she wanted her chicklets to live and she was willing to lay down her life. It's a clumsy example an illustration, although Jesus did that for us. He, he sat on us and covered us and took the hit willingly. And it's not that he just begrudgingly. Oh, I guess I got to die for these losers. Nope. The reason you should keep going in this life and not give up is because Jesus didn't give up on you. and why was it that He didn't? is what a, this is powerful. Look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. who for the joy that was set before him? What was the joy set before him? Saving you? Having you live with him for all of eternity? Jesus had a joy even in the midst of the suffering, the plucking out of the beard, the punching of the face, the crown of thorns, nails in the hands, the whipping on the back, endured all of that with joy that was set before him. That was you. He had you in mind. And I know you disappoint yourself and you disappoint me and I disappoint you. But guess what? It was a joy. It wasn't a reluctant dying on the cross. It was a joyful dying on the cross for your sins. It was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame and is now set at the right hand of the throne of God, which means it's, it's a done deal. It's happened. It's, it's there for the taking. He already did the work. He's seated at the right hand of the father. Salvation is there for anyone who wants it. And it was a joy that he wanted to save you. Does that make it even more heartbreaking to think of a world that rejects Christ you know, when I look at those that are marching and protesting and angry, and you see a real godlessness and, you know, you know, socialism and Marxism and all this stuff is very godless, very atheistic. And as I see a world that is so unthankful and not being willing to give glory to God, it, when I realize that Jesus died for those sins of that world and they're ungrateful and unthankful and unholy and they're unwilling to accept and receive what Jesus did, where he took that heat and he did it joyfully with you in mind. I can't even fathom somebody who understands this and, and re- still rejects Jesus Christ. It starts to, now this is gonna, I'm probably gonna be misunderstood here, but it starts to make sense about hell. One of the things humanity struggles with is the concept of hell. How could God have a place called hell and why would he ever send people there? Well, first of all, you send yourself there. You're the one who sinned. You did the crime. You're going to do the time. It's just that simple. God loved you so much that with joy in his heart, he said, I'm going to die for the sins of that horrible, stinky sinner, and I'm going to wash them and clean them. They didn't do anything to deserve it or earn it. My grace is going to be put out upon that person. I'll save them. And when a person says, whatever, I don't need God. I can do this myself and whatever. That's when hell starts to make sense to me. It starts to make sense that God is righteous. And if a person really wants to send themselves to hell and they want to step over the loving dead body of Christ, it's almost like they, you know on that fireman's crew you know, trail that they'd cut, just walk up and kick the bird off the side and whatever and uh, kill the chicks. Like that's, that's sort of the, the mindset of someone who says, I reject Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for me. God forbid that any of you would be that hard hearted God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and the one that he gave went willingly with joy in his heart for you that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As I close um, I gotta say, um, man I, I, I hope if you're a Christian I hope your heart, like Spurgeon said, you know, uh, his quote let me read his quote one more time because it's so good about this verse, these passages this is what I hope for you Christians He said I may not be able to say much that is fresh upon this theme the cross and his suffering but I hope that I shall be helped by the spirit to stir up your minds by way of remembrance my great object is to lead you to love him who loved you that he set his face like flint in his determination to save you O redeemed ones on whose behalf this strong resolve was made you have been bought By the precious blood of the steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think a while of Him that your hearts may burn within you and that your faces may be set like flints to live and die for Him who lived and died for you. That's what I hope today's study in Isaiah 50 does for you and for me as Christians. But secondly, if you're not a Christian, today's the day give up, give in, stop being stubborn. You know it's true. You might have all kinds of reasons you want to not follow Jesus or you think the Bible's full of errors because some cardigan-wearing, pipe-puffing professor told you that nonsense and you've been duped by someone somewhere. But the truth is, your heart, your mind, you have a conscience that God has given you and you know that it's true, that you can be saved by God's grace and you just need to be willing to repent, change your mind, go the opposite direction and say, Lord, forgive me, save me a sinner. And then if you believe upon Jesus Christ that he died, was buried and rose from the grave like he did, if you believe that and accept that, you will be saved. Read Romans chapter 10, verse nine and 10. It says that just very clearly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, how thankful we are for so great a salvation. (laughs) Forgive us, Lord, for not marveling every single day at the foot of your cross. Forgive us, Lord, for not reciprocating with that face set like flint mentality, with an unbending faithfulness, Lord, that we should have for you because of your unbending faithfulness you've shown for us. Lord, may the church of Jesus Christ have their hearts stirred. May your love burn within us and may we also then live our lives sold out for you as you lived your life sold out for us. And Lord, for the unsaved, convict their hearts, save their souls, bring them to a saving relationship and knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.